Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Jude. Very neglected book in the Scriptures, but yet a very important book that our Lord has breathed out for us. The uh, sermon comes a little bit earlier in the message uh, because we are taking, uh, having communion, the Lord's Supper, together today. So we are at the book of Jude. For those of you who don't know where that is in your scriptures, it is uh, go to Revelation and then one book back, one chapter long. And we'll be starting in verse 1, going through verse 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Pray with me this morning. Lord, this is your word. It's not my word, it is a, it is a powerful word. It is a word that is able to save souls. It is a word that is able to bring the dead to life. And so, Lord, as we listen today, let us listen as such. Let us listen knowing and understanding that your word is meant to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness so that we might be mature and complete and not lacking anything. So I pray, Lord, that you would grant me grace to preach your word and the power of your spirit, and that you would grant me grace to, uh, to and the folks who are listening today, whether it be here in this building or those that are outside or those on the live stream, that they would hear it in the power of your spirit. Transform and change your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start off this morning by reading uh, an excerpt from a website. It's an organization's website, and I'd like you to think about who this organization is as I'm reading through it. After the Supreme Court decision in 1972, Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion in the United States, this organization has joined with other groups to protect women's equal and fair access to abortion and family planning, which have been under attack consistently. A quote from a woman by the name of Beverly Harrison, there has been an objective gain in the quality of women's lives for those fortunate enough to have access to procreative choice, that is, access to abortion, that millions upon millions of women as yet do not possess even the rudimentary conditions, moral or physical, for such a choice is obvious. Our moral goal 
should be to struggle against those real barriers. Poverty, racism, and anti-female cultural oppression that prevent authentic choice from being a reality for every woman. How many of you think you know the name of this organization? And if you do, say it out loud. Planned Parenthood, that's what I heard most of. What if I told you you were wrong? What if I told you that what I just read, I got directly off of the website of the United Church of Christ? A denomination that was formed in 1957 as the General Council of Congregational Christian Churches merged with the Evangelical and Reformed Church. Denominations that can trace their roots back to the Reformation and the Puritans, the people who were known for being so word-centered, so word-saturated. But 300, 400, 500 years later, a branch from those roots has departed so far away from the faith that they would fight for and celebrate a woman's right to violate the sixth commandment by murdering her own baby. That they would fight for and celebrate men and women violating the seventh commandment by participating and engaging in same-sex relationships. How does this happen? I mean, lest we think that, that the church of, United Church of Christ is an anomaly, this is the story of church after church after church in our generation. Many of them are in the mainline Protestant denominations, but we're starting to see that expand outside of there. And I don't mention the United Church of Christ this morning out of a sense of, of pride or self-righteousness. I mention them as a reminder to us here at Grace Church that Grace Church is always no more than one generation away from following in their footsteps. You just think, one generation ago in our country, would anybody have ever thought that we would be where we are today? No way. It doesn't take long to change. Just one generation. So let me just ask the question this morning. What will keep us from such infidelity? What will keep us from conceding to the pressures of an ever-changing cultural morality? What will keep our kids, ensure that our kids and our grandkids and the next generation inherit a faithful church instead of an apostate one? Well, Jude is going to answer those questions for us this morning. Just to give you a little context before we jump in this morning, in the very first verse of this letter, we see that uh, the author identifies himself as Eudas in the Greek which translates to English either as Judas or Jude. Now, there are obviously some Judases you don't want to be mistaken with. So Jude, he uh, further clarifies that he is the brother of James. Now, we see these two, uh, two brothers listed in, in Matthew chapter 13. They have a mother by the name of Mary, and then they have an older brother by the name of Jesus. And so Jude is the half-brother of our Lord. Now, we're not told about his office in the early church, what it was. It's, many scholars think that he was probably an evangelist, like an itinerant missionary. Uh, perhaps he was an apostolic delegate like, like Timothy. We're not told much about the recipients. We're not told about who they were or what geography they lived in. But it is crystal clear 
in this letter that he is writing to a local church, a local gathering of believers. For instance, in verse 1, he writes to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, a.k.a. He's writing to Christians. In verse 3 and 4, Jude distinctly lays out why he is writing the letter in the first place. He says this, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to look at this a little bit more closely this morning, but what we see here is that certain people had infiltrated the church, and they were bearing signs of apostasy. And so Jude picked up his pen to write this letter as an urgent warning to the church to, uh, uh, to resist their corrupting influence by contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. A faith that was being threatened. Church, a faith that is being threatened today, and indeed a faith that will continue to be threatened until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. I want to start out this morning before we jump into the text by, by talking about apostasy. So this is, this is what Jude's letter is about. Um, so what is apostasy, apostasy or what is an apostate? If you look up that word in your Bible, depending on the translation you have, you're only going to find it a, a handful of times. Um, in, 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 just as an example, the ESV, you're only going to find it translated that way in three places. It would be in Micah chapter, three, or chapter 2, Hosea chapter 14, and Jeremiah chapter 2. But you will find examples of apostasy all throughout the Scriptures, from Genesis to, to Revelation. And so what exactly is it? Well, I think Jeremiah, when he uses the word, I think it clues us into the basic meaning of apostasy. In his prophecy to the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, Judah, Jeremiah writes this. He says, your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to, here it is, forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. And so at a very, very basic level, Apostasy is a failure to fear God, which manifests itself in forsaking the Lord and His Word by those who once professed to be His people, or even, as we'll see a little bit later, those who even continue to profess to be His people. So Judah, there were those who were seemingly God's people, but they had forsaken the Lord. They had forsaken His law. They had forsaken His worship. There was no longer any fear of Him in them. The same Hebrew word that Jeremiah uses here for apostasy, it's translated in Proverbs 132 as turning away. And so that's, that's the basic idea. It's the forsaking of or the turning away from the Lord. Lest we think that the New Testament is silent about this, Jesus so clearly wants his church to know that apostates are coming. And he says that in, in, in multiple different ways in, in the scriptures and the gospels. But I want you to, to think about one of his most famous parables, the parable of the sower or the parable of the soil. You know this one. The sower went out to sow some seed and some of it fell on the path and some of it fell on rocky soil. Some of it fell on soil with thorns and some of it fell on good soil. 
And then the Lord explains it in Luke chapter 8, verses, uh, starting in verse 11. He says this, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. When the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. Stop. You see, from all visual observation, these are people who receive the word with joy. They look like believers. But then Jesus continues. He says, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. They forsake the Lord. They turn away from Him. And as for the, the, what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. In other words, their sinful passions lead them astray as the world's temptations and allure is out there like a dangling carrot. And they forsake the Lord. As for those, that is the, the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. They don't forsake the Lord. They don't turn away from Him. And if they do at any time, they come running back. See, this is very important that we understand what Jesus is talking about in this parable because it's going to help us understand and shed light on a lot of other scriptures. For instance, there are the infamous difficult passages in Hebrews. It is very important that we would understand what Jesus is talking about as we go into some of those, those difficult passages. Let me just give you one where he's speaking. The author of Hebrews, as Jeff would say, Paul through the pen of Luke, uh, describes the apostate this way. It says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And so from all outward observation, the apostate seemed to be genuine. He seemed to be saved. They had made their way on the membership rolls. They understood the gospel. In fact, they, they professed to believe in the gospel. They had experienced the benefits of being in a community where the Holy Spirit was at work and, 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 and people all around them. The power was there that they could see it, in, it for themselves, but then they fell away. See, one of the things that I want you to, to see in all of these verses is that apostates are not just somewhere out there in the world. Apostates are in here in the church. Hopefully not here at Grace Church in this moment, we, but we can't take that for granted. That's why we're called to be alert. See, apostates sit amongst the people of God. They look like believers. They talk like believers. In so many ways, they act like believers, but eventually they forsake the Lord. They turn away from Him. And sometimes that's outward and it's public where they are rejecting Christ and rejecting Christianity altogether. But all too often, more often than that, it is silent and it is subtle. And it, is, it continues as they sit in the chairs and the pews of churches all across the world. It happens with a subtle shift in beliefs, which continues to shift more and more and more. And then finally it starts to manifest itself with it, not only a shift in beliefs, but a shift in speech, 
and a shift in behavior. See, they are dangerous counterfeits living amongst the authentic. They are, um, after even, and if their corrupting influence is not, if it's left uncontested, it will bring a local church to ruin. So that's what we're going to see in Jude over the next couple of weeks as Jude speaks about apostasy. Now, I've titled this sermon today, Contend or Be Corrupted. Contend or Be Corrupted. The main point is essentially that. Your responsibility, our responsibility, is to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. If we do not contend, we will be corrupted. That is what we are going to look at. We'll put some flesh on those bones as we look at verses 3 and 4 today. So let's start with verse 3. I want you to see what I've already said, that your responsibility is to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Beloved, I couldn't wait to pick up my pen and write to you about this mind-blowing, joy-inducing salvation that we share, that we are equal participants in, that we are equal partakers in. I couldn't wait to write to you about how we were dead in our transgressions and sins, about how we had broken God's law for the entirety of our lives in thought, word, and deed, that we had incurred God's wrath, that we were deserving of His infinite wrath in hell forever. But then how Jesus came, and He did not fall short of the glory of God, but He fulfilled that law for us, earning a spotless, righteous perfect record that he gives to all of us who have believed that we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ as if we had never sinned before. Beloved, I couldn't wait to write to you about how our sins were piled high on the evidence table in the courtroom of God, but how Jesus stepped in and scraped those sins off of that table for us and took them to the cross and bore the infinite wrath of the Father so that we wouldn't have to in hell forever that we have forgiveness of sins because of what He accomplished for us. Beloved, I couldn't wait to write to you about how the lifeless body, the lifeless corpse of Jesus lay stone cold dead in that tomb. But after the third day, the Father raised Him up from the dead, abolishing death and bringing life and light to, to, life to light through, and immortality to life through the gospel. I couldn't wait to write to you about how we have eternal life now. How even our trials and afflictions have purpose. That how He's coming again, how He's going to make all things new. How He's going to give, our, give us bodies that are glorious like His own. How we will be brought into the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, where sin is no more, where death and disease and sickness and heartache are no more. I couldn't wait to write to you about our common salvation. But then I received word about something that was going on in your congregation. Something dangerous. Something threatening. Something that I had to address. Something that wasn't optional. Something that divine necessity was laid upon me to write to you about. 
Jude writes, I found it necessary to write appealing to you or urging you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To contend, this word means to exert intense effort on behalf of something, to struggle on behalf of something. In this case, Jude says it's for the faith. Now, oftentimes when we, when we look into the scriptures and we see this word faith, we, we think that it's talking about, and it is oftentimes talking about in the scriptures, personal faith in Jesus. So oftentimes you'll hear Jesus say things like, oh, you of little faith. That is, you don't have personal trust in me when he says that. But this is not what Jude is talking about here when he uses the word the faith. He's using the faith in a similar way that Paul uses it in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Here Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, that's important, abounding in thanksgiving. And so much like Paul, Jude is referring to a body of teaching, a body of doctrine. What body of teaching are you talking about, Jude? Well, he tells us, he says, it's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's the body of Christian doctrine that had already been delivered once for all time, once for all people. The body of Christian doctrine that doesn't trickle in at a little at a time over the centuries. The body of Christian doctrine that excludes new additions and excludes subtractions via new revelation. The body of Christian doctrine that had already been delivered by God through the apostles to the church by the time that Jude wrote this letter. The body of Christian doctrine that was already complete, already established, already known by the churches, already unable to be edited or altered. And so was this body of teaching, was this something that was written down? Was it something that was oral? It's probably a combination of both. I mean, if we think that Jude probably wrote this letter somewhere in the mid-60s, first century mid-60s, um, most of Paul's letters were circulating through the churches at that time, and at least one of the Gospels was probably circulating through the churches at that time. So even though the, the, the canon of Scripture wasn't closed until the end of the first century when uh, John wrote his last letter, the, the body of, of Christian doctrine, the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith was closed by the time that Jude wrote this letter. It was the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What are we talking about here? Well, what we're talking about is what Paul refers to in 2 Timothy as the good deposit. He calls it the word of truth. It is the doctrines of the Christian faith that are contained in the word of God, what we know today as the Bible, the scriptures. And more specifically, it's the body of Christian doctrine that was delivered by the apostles to the church, a.k.a. what we know today as the New Testament. You see, this is what we are called to contend for, to exert intense effort to guard and to protect, to engage in the struggle so that it isn't compromised or diluted or tainted or ignored or forsaken, to contend to keep the scriptures in their proper place as the sole and infallible authority for faith and practice, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Let's ask the question, why, why is this necessary? I mean, why can't we just focus on just loving people and not worry about doctrine? I mean, after all, doesn't doctrine divide? Yes, it does. 
And don't ever forget that it does. It divides the faithful from the unfaithful. It divides the contenders from the corrupted. It divides the genuine from the apostate. And so in verse 3, we've seen that it is our responsibility and your responsibility to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But why is that the case? Why is that necessary? Jude is going to show us this. This is why it's necessary, that if you do not contend, you will be corrupted in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, it's necessary to contend for the faith because there will be people in our midst that are contending against the faith. You see, there are cert were certain people who had crept in unnoticed to this church. They had snuck in under the radar. They had made their way onto the membership role. They had started to participate in grace groups. They had signed up for the meal train to serve other members. They looked like Christians. They spoke like Christians. In many ways, they appeared to, to live like Christians, except there was something off. But whether they knew it or not, they were something entirely different. Jude says this, they were long ago designated for this condemnation. What condemnation are you referring to here, Jude? Well, it's the condemnation that he's going to be describing and unfolding for us in the rest of the letter. We'll look at a little bit of that next week. But as we, as if you saw it in, in the greeting of the letter, there's something different between Christians and apostates. And the difference is this that Christians, genuine, true believers, are kept for salvation and kept for Jesus Christ. In other words, they are guarded and preserved. First Peter, we see that they, they are guarded and preserved by God's power directed to maintaining and sustaining our faith. But these are people who are not kept for salvation. These are people who are kept for judgment. They were never Christians. They had never experienced the new birth. Jude will tell us a little later in the letter that they are devoid of the Spirit. They are thorny soil, counterfeit Christians, and they are threat to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Now look, ungodly people. Not godly not living in submission to God's word, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. To pervert, that means to uh, change the state of something, to cause something to be different than it actually is. And so for these people, they were promoting and living as if the grace of God were something different than it actually is. To them, the grace of God was a license to sin. It was a license to indulge their sinful passions. That's what sensuality means. It means behavior that is completely lacking in moral restraint. Usually, but not always, uh, directed towards the implication of sexual licentiousness. See, there's two fiery ditches to the 
to the true biblical path of tr- true Christianity that's, that we see in the scriptures. One, one fiery ditch is, is the fiery ditch of legalism. And legalism says that I must uh, submit to God's law, I must keep God's law, I must do good things in order to make myself right with God and earn my salvation. That's a fiery ditch because if you stay in that ditch, it will lead you to hell. But that's not what Jude is speaking about here. He's speaking about the other fiery ditch, which is the antinomian fiery ditch. The antinomian says this, that, that my sins have been forgiven, all of them, past, present, and future. That the law of God has already been fulfilled for me. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. A few years ago, I was leading a, a, a small group study through the grace of God. And at the beginning of that study, I asked the question, what is the grace of God? And the overwhelming majority of those who were there said this, that the grace of God is the forgiveness of sins. And I think that's probably the answer the majority of of Christians would give. But listen, if that's all you think that the grace of God is, then you are dangerously close to buying into the antinomian way of thinking. Here's how they think. God's grace has forgiven all my sins. After all, that's all God's grace is to the antinomian. Therefore, I can do what I want. It's the same thing that Paul was addressing in Romans 6 when he wrote, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under, but under grace? And then what does he say? By no means. Emphatically, no. He's saying you've completely missed what God's grace actually is. Yes, it's forgiveness, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. And then he goes on in Titus, and he unfolds what's underneath that little tip of the iceberg of what the grace of God is. He says this in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, both Jew and Gentile. Listen, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, God's saving grace transforms the attitude of the heart towards sin. Paul says right here that it trains or teaches us to renounce sin, not to continue to indulge in sin. If you were converted as a child, you might not remember this, and that's okay, but if you were converted as an adult, you should remember, at least have some recollection of this switch that took place in your heart. The sin that you once loved, now you loathe. And the righteousness you once loathed, now you love. That's not your experience. If you, if you still are, are love your sin and are okay with your sin, I just want to encourage you to examine yourself to see whether or not you are truly in the faith. Open up 1 John and let it be like an x-ray showing you what's there, what's real in your heart. And I would also encourage you to come back next week because we're going to be talking about some of the signs of an apostate. And that is something that you would want to know today rather than the day that Jesus Christ returns. And there are going to be droves of people whom he says, depart from me, 
you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. See, God's grace is a license, but it is not a license to sin. It's a license to mortify sin, to put it to death, and to live, as Paul says, an upright, godly life when? In the present age, in the here and now, today. See, this is the consistent teaching of the Scriptures. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 6. This is what Ezekiel was talking about in Ezekiel 36, where he talks about the new birth and what happens after the new birth. This is exactly what John is talking about in 1 John. It's exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. This is what the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints, teaches. But this is not what antinomian false converts teach. See, they tout Christian freedom in order to justify violating God's law. They resist calls to repentance and oftentimes wrongly cry legalism when something is mere Christian obedience. They dilute Christianity down to love your neighbor without using the Bible to actually define what that means. They treat God's word like it's a buffet, picking and choosing whatever they want and leaving what they don't like. They live like the world because they are of the world. And as a result, Jude says, they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Why? Because rejecting God's Word is equivalent to rejecting Him. Now, we're going to tease some of this out next week, but for now, can you see why we must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints? We must contend for the faith because there are going to be people that are in our midst contending against the faith. It's like this. A good illustration is like we're in this big tug of war. And on the other end of the rope is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they are pulling with all of their might, attempting to pull us away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And their pull is perpetual. It's continual. It's relentless. And why, how do they pull? Well, they pull by tempting us and pressuring us as the church to buy into, to embrace the world's ideas, false ideas about God, false ideas about man, false ideas about the scriptures, false ideas about worship, false ideas about morality, false ideas that are in opposition to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And then we, the saints, we're on the other end of that rope. Kids, have you ever been in a tug of war and one team is, is ready and they start pulling and the other team isn't? What happens? Right? They get dragged away and oftentimes you see them falling one on top of each other. And it's pretty funny if that happens, especially if nobody gets hurt. But I'll tell you right now, it's not funny when that happens spiritually. It's a tragedy. And church, that's not a tragedy we want to, to be a part of. If we do not contend for the faith, but we just stand there holding the rope, we will be dragged away. This is what's happened to the United Church of Christ and church after church after church. They have... Essentially, they have turned their backs on, the, on the, uh, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. 
They have turned their backs on the authority and infallibility of the scriptures. They have tolerated false teaching. They have embraced the world's false ideas. And it has spread like an aggressive cancer. And it has is, it is corrupted the word of God in those churches. And it, thus it has corrupted the church. Church, we must contend or we will be just like that. We will be corrupted. And so... As we think about that, how can we do that? How can we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints? A little time of application here. But I think I'm going to start with something else. How can we not contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints? So I want to offer you six ways to not contend for the faith. Six ways that amount to you and I just standing there holding the rope while the world, the flesh, and the devil tries to pull us away. First way, how not to contend for the faith. Keep God's word at a minimum in your home. Keep it at a minimum. Do not establish uh, the, the discipline of reading your Bible daily and praying daily. Don't do that. What you need to do is, is get that little booklet that I think it's called the Daily Bread, or as one of my professors called it, the Daily Crumb. <laughs> and you just need to read that every once in a while. If you're, if you're married, make sure that you don't read the Bible with your spouse, that you don't pray with your spouse. Don't talk about what you've read in the Word with your spouse. Don't read any other Christian books with them. If you have kids, whatever you do, oh, please, don't establish family worship in your home. Don't do that. And make sure that when they grow older, when they get out of your house and somebody mentions the name catechism, that they scratch their heads and say, what's that? See, just hang that picture on your wall that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's enough word in your home. And that's enough to get you dragged away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Beware, church. Number two, how not to contend for the faith. Keep your faith private and under your control. You decide, as seems best to you, how and when to worship God. You decide whether Sunday worship is optional for, for both you and those kids who are living under your roof. I mean, surely you can worship God anywhere, the Lord says. The Lord, the world says, not the Lord doesn't say that. Well, you can, actually, but it's supposed to be here on Sunday worship. You can worship Him out in the boat. You can worship Him out on the golf course. You can work, as long as you're out in nature, that's, that's kind of the world's ideas. How about this? You decide whether church membership is optional. I mean, the word church membership is not even in the Bible after all. Surely, the implication of Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18 on church discipline didn't imply that people would be committed members of local churches, right? Beloved, this is a judges-style Christianity. You know what that is? Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes and not what is right in the Lord's eyes. And it is equivalent to a wolf having you by the leg and dragging you away and you not even knowing it. Beware. Beware. Number three, how not to contend for the faith. Keep ignoring the signs of false conversion in family members, friends, and church members who profess to be Christians. Chalk up their unrepentant sin patterns and their erroneous beliefs to immaturity. 
chalk up their lack of desire to come to church as a relevance issue rather than a heart issue. If you continue to assure yourself they're saved, that means you never have to challenge them to examine themselves to see whether they're in the faith or not. And that means that when church gatherings come around and family gatherings come around and holidays come around, you can relax and you can have a good time together and not get in any discussions that could have tension while both you and them are dragged away from the faith. Beware. Number four, how not to contend for the faith. Be minimally involved at church. Minimal. Come sparsely on Sundays. Slip in five minutes early. Say a few highs, a little, uh, have a little surface-level conversation, and then slip out shortly after it's over. And whatever you do, do not participate in anything extracurricular. Evening worship in the park, cross it off the list. Get it off the calendar. Grace groups where we actually spend time together studying the Word and praying, mark that off. Don't get involved in men's and women's studies. Just check the box so that you can get back to your life. See, this is Lone Ranger Christianity. You know what a Lone Ranger Christian is like? He's like a little sheep that's walking along happy as he can be and doesn't know he's been hunted, being hunted by a pack of wolves. He's getting ready to be dinner. Beware. Number five, this is for you, church. Be man-centered instead of God-centered. Be man-centered. Have, have a big tent mentality. You know what that is? The church is like this big tent, and under this big tent, there's room for all kinds of beliefs. Stop talking about topics that could offend somebody listening. Stop renouncing things that God, God's Word clearly says that are abominations to Him. Stop renouncing abortion. Stop renouncing homosexuality. Stop renouncing all flavors of sexual immorality. Stop renouncing wicked prosperity gospel preachers. We're going to have to get rid of Jeff. And then you're going to have to get rid of Mike, and then you're going to have to get rid of Sam, and then you're going to have to get rid of me. See, in worship, ask this question. How do people want to worship instead of how does God instruct us to worship? It's a little plug for our study that's getting ready to come up in grace groups. I invite you to join us for that. I'm not sure you have a choice after this today. <laughs> Number six. How not to contend. Excuse yourself from participating in church discipline. If a brother or sister approaches you concerned about some sin, tell them that they don't have any business interfering in your life. And to make sure that they never do it again, call them judgmental. On the other hand, if you witness a brother or sister caught in some sin pattern, don't approach them. If you witness somebody expressing a belief that is clearly unbiblical, don't say a word. After all, Jesus could not have been talking to you when he laid out the process of church discipline and he said this, very first step, if your brother or sister sins, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Couldn't have referred to you. I mean, you don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. Beware. Excuse yourself from church discipline and you will be dragged away from the faith eventually. You see, this is what it looks like to contend, not to contend for the faith. 
Six ways to stand there essentially with the rope in your hands and to be pulled away by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, I understand that there's complex life situations that may not allow you to be able to do some of these things. I'm not talking about those situations. I'm talking about legitimately, if you could. And I understand that this has probably been painful for some of us in here. It's probably struck a nerve. If it struck a nerve in you, join the club. It struck a nerve in me. There are areas that I'm falling short too. And just to be clear, this is not what we are being called to. These are just opposites of how Jude instructs us to contend for the faith in verses 17 through 22. Literally two minutes. Let me run through these. First, we see the call to be alert. Alert that there's going to be people in our midst and we have to be alert and watchful. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Be alert. Be careful. Be alert. Second, we see this call to resist that corrupting influence by engaging in word-centered activities. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves, you, church, meeting together, being together, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. In other words, be word-saturated. Take every opportunity that you can to study the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Take every opportunity in your home, in Sunday worship, as an actively engaged church member, in grace groups, in men's and women's groups. Pray together, encourage one another, hold each other accountable. Number three, we see the call to engage in church discipline, to maintain the purity of the church, and to go after those who have been led astray by the corrupting influence of those pe these people, and have mercy on those who doubt Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Engage in church discipline. Don't neglect that. So as we close this morning, I just want you to take a moment and think about the direction that our country that we live in right now is heading in. I don't think it takes a prophet to foresee that, that the pull is probably getting ready to get a lot stronger against the faith. It might not be more than just a couple of years before contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints could cost you and I dearly. It could cost us ostracization. It could cost us uh, maybe jail time. It could cost us our jobs. It could cost us something a lot, a lot worse than those. I'm not trying to scare you. I mean, I hope, just as you do, I hope the Lord will bring another great awakening upon this land. But if He doesn't, because He hasn't promised to, are you ready? If you're not contending well now in these relatively easy conditions, what do you think is going to happen when the pull gets a lot stronger? You see, Jude's letter is meant to be a wake-up call for us all. And so let me encourage you, church, and, and appeal to you, church, to contend. Contend. Pick up the rope, tighten your grip, and relying on your Savior's strength, pull and pull and pull. 
Pull in your home. Pull for your life. Pull for your kids' lives. Pull for your spouse's life. Pull for your church's life. Pull for the next generation's life. Because after all, there is no life outside of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Church, I want to encourage you to pull and to pull and to pull until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And He ushers us all into the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no one on the other end of that rope pulling anymore, trying to pull us away from the faith. It will be there that our faith is turned to sight. And as we gaze back to the end of our side of the rope, we will see that we had a sure and a steady anchor the entire time. We will see that that rope was wrapped around our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was His strength that kept us from being dragged away. And it was His strength that allowed us to be able to contend, and not only to contend, but to prevail. So church, the call today to you is, your responsibility is to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But beware, if you do not contend, you will be corrupted. Let's pray. Our Lord, first of all, let me just say praise you for your warnings. For your warnings are not meant to bring us death. They're meant to bring us life. Lord, I know I can speak. I can speak of my own personal life. How... There are so many areas that I am falling short in. That I've slacked in, that I've been lazy in. That I've had the wrong ideas about. And I I just ask, Lord, that if there's, and I'm sure I'm not the only one here today, but if there's anyone here today that that is slacking in some area, God, by your grace, will you wake us up? Will you remind us? what we are called to. Will you grant us the grace that we need to to seriously pick up the rope and tighten the grip and pull, trusting in you? Lord, we know that we have a world that is right now just showing itself probably more than it's ever showed itself to be in opposition to you and your word and your truth. And we need your grace to to be able to stand. And you've given us your word today to remind us of that. We don't know what's ahead. You do. But thank you that you're preparing us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to transition uh, to a time of uh, communion together, of the Lord's Supper together. And just as a reminder, at the center of what we are are going to be uh, celebrating today, of what we are going to be responsible to contend for is the gospel, what this meal represents. The bread and the juice are are representative of of three things, a picture, a purpose, and a promise. The picture is of the suffering and death of Jesus on behalf of His people. It's the bread representing the torn body of Jesus on that cross. The juice pictures His blood being poured out for His people for the forgiveness of our sins. The purpose is, in one word, it's for salvation. How can a holy God and a sinful people dwell together? Only 
if their sin is removed and the people are made holy. And that's what's happened on that cross. Jesus scraped his people's sins off of the evidence table in the courtroom of God, took them to the cross, and suffered under the infinite wrath of the Father that they would have experienced in hell, that we would have experienced in hell. The promise is this, this meal represents, is for all who repent and trust in Jesus alone, you will have the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and eternal life. And so as we, as we get ready to eat the bread and drink the juice, if you do that, what you are saying is that I believe, I trust, I am banking on that torn body and that blood spilled out for me for, for, for my salvation, for peace with God, for eternal life. I am hoping in that and in that alone, nothing or anyone else. If you're here today and you can't say that, we would uh, ask you to abstain from taking part of this meal that's reserved for believers. Uh, when the elements come by, uh, just simply pass them on. Uh, nobody here is going to judge you for that, but we would ask you to, to see the gospel in that. As the pe- people next to you and around you are, are taking part in this juice and this bread, they are signifying and symbolizing this is, this is our only hope to make us right with God. Parents, we trust you with your kids. There's one requisite, prerequisite for, um, for, for partaking in the Lord's Supper, and that is that your kids believe. They're trusting in Christ. So I'm going to pray for us. Then the worship team, which is here, they're going to be playing a song while we all stay seated. Uh, the men are going to pass out the elements, and um, if you just hold them, and we'll, we'll take them together in just a moment. So let me pray for us. Our Lord, we are grateful for the grace of this meal. Lord, where we commune with you. It's mysterious, as Sam said in his email. It's a mysterious means of grace where, where you strengthen our faith. I pray for your grace for that to happen today, Lord, as we, as we remember and reflect on and we look through these elements to what they represent, our Lord Jesus Christ, our only hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.